It is an encouraging and delightful and joyful sight to look out across this room and see the smiling faces that go all the way back to the back. God is good. Amen? Amen. Our reading, our, our sermon actually today will come from Galatians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. But in order to capture some of the context of what I will be speaking about today, I will begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of God from Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the gospel of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men... I should not be the servant of Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, we are ever thankful for the revelation of your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light going before us in the path of life. It is the beginning of wisdom and in it the simple find understanding. When we abide in your word, we grow in the knowledge of the truth, a truth that liberates us from the bondage of sin, making us free, even as the rain and snow that you send from heaven to water the earth brings forth fruit and flower, grass and grain, providing both beauty and sustenance for all the creatures, so does your perfect word when you send it forth accomplish all that you have ordained according to your good pleasure. And those who receive it, those who have ears to hear and whose stony hearts have been made flesh, are profited thereby and equipped for godliness, no longer being objects of wrath, but of mercy and kindness and recipients of your gracious pardon. How good you are and how good you have been to us. As we turn our attention now to your holy word, we confess that apart from the light of your Holy Spirit, the truth of your word remains dark in our understanding. We therefore pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to empower both the preaching and the hearing of your word. Help us to understand both the hard things and the plain things, and grow us in our understanding and in our application as you send forth the word. This we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. 
can tell already my voice is going to give out. There was a sense of satisfaction and confidence in the air. As the men gathered around the evening fires and attended to the necessary chores, all the talk was of their recent victory. There was ready laughter on the lips of all the people everywhere around the encampment. And even now, plans were being made for the next battle. The man in charge of this victorious army had the people's confidence. Evidence of the Lord's blessing upon him had been made manifest, and word had spread throughout the land, such that even the kings in the region, in the path of their march, began to fear and dread their approach. And now, with this recent and most astonishing victory behind them, surely nothing could stand in the way of their conquest of the whole land that lay before them. A reconnaissance party was sent out to evaluate the next target city. Upon their return, a recommendation was made that only a portion of the army, perhaps two or, or 3,000 men, would be needed to, since the city was fairly small. And so 3,000 fighting men were made ready and sent out to take the little unfortified city of Ai. And you know the story. The 3,000 men were turned back by Ai, and they fled before the people there. And this, recent, this recently victorious army that now had to retreat so quickly lost 36 men in the process. And so we ask, why? Why had the Lord given Joshua and the people of Israel such an amazing victory at the fortified, walled city of Jericho only to lead them to a disgraceful defeat at Ai. Overconfidence was not the real problem. They could have sent five or ten times the number against Ai, and they still would have been turned back. As you may recall the text, even in the midst of the victory at Jericho, sin entered the camp of Israel. Joshua had given the Lord's instruction to the people that the city of Jericho was to be accursed. All of the people of Jericho and their possessions were to be utterly destroyed, all but Rahab and her family, who were to be spared because of her service in hiding the spies. Everyone and everything in Jericho was to be destroyed and burned except the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron which were consecrated unto the Lord and to be set into the treasury of the Lord. But Achan's eyes fell upon a beautiful Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, and he coveted them. And he took them, and he buried them in his tent. It seems like such a minor offense to our modern sensibilities, and yet this transgression, this sin of Achan, is why the 3,000 were so easily turned back at Ai. Because he had taken for himself of the accursed things and stolen and deceived, the Lord was not with them in battle. The sin had to be removed from within the camp of Israel. And once Achan's sin had been uncovered and confessed, 
we read the scriptures. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them into the valley of Achor. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Since Achan had taken that which was accursed, he and his family had become accursed. The Hebrew word translated accursed here is harem. It means devoted to destruction in this context. Something to be banned and utterly destroyed to our modern sensibilities, designating the city of Jericho as harem. And then to purge sin from the camp of Israel by condemning Achan and his household in like manner seems unreasonably harsh. And yet I suspect this is because we have an anemic view of God's holiness and how beholden we are to abide by His Word. But the reason I have chosen this illustration from the history recorded in Joshua chapter 6 and 7 is to try and flesh out our understanding of Paul's use of the word accursed in verses 8 and 9 of this first chapter of Galatians. If we look at the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, harem is transliterated from Greek into anathema. And this is the same Greek word translated here in the King James in verses 7 verses 8 and 9, as accursed. This is strong language. It is not simply a dismissive idiom of the day. So let us read verse 8 again. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. When we read accursed here, we should think anathema, devoted to destruction. We should picture the utter destruction of Jericho or Achan and his household. Paul here in verse 8 is presenting a hypothetical curse that should fall upon those who might preach another gospel, a false gospel in the church. The first hypothetical scenario is found where Paul writes, but though we Paul is so certain, so confident in the rightness and purity of the gospel that he had first delivered to the Galatians that he is willing to pronounce that he or any of those with him, likely Barnabas and others, should be anathema if they are found to be preaching another gospel. A gospel with something added or or something taken away, which is not another gospel, but rather a false gospel. Paul is rightly willing to first find fault with himself in order that he may all the more reprove those who are actually promoting a false gospel. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He adds, or an angel from heaven to the hypothetical anathema. Martin Luther writes, Paul's zeal for the gospel becomes so fervent that it almost leads him to curse angels. I would rather that I, my brethren, yes, the angels of heaven be anathematized than my gospel be overthrown. 
No doubt Paul has effectually gotten the attention of the Galatians with this statement. And he then continues in verse 9, moving from hypothetical to actual, from personal to general. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. The anathema is repeated for emphasis, but the direction is changed. Paul has established that he is willing to be anathema himself if he should preach a false gospel, but now he turns and says that if anyone, that if anyone does preach another gospel, they should be accursed. They should be devoted to destruction. Martin Luther once again observes, Paul herewith curses and excommunicates all false teachers, including his opponents. He is so worked up that he dares to curse all who pervert his gospel. Would to God that this terrible pronouncement of the apostle might strike fear into the hearts of all who pervert the gospel really, uh, delivered by Paul. Isn't it interesting that in these two little verses, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, subordinates himself, all preachers, all the angels of heaven, and everyone, whether they be popes or prophets, to the sacred scriptures. No one may add nor take away from the gospel without placing themselves in authority above the scriptures. And at that point, everything is lost. The importance and necessity of sola scriptura is on display in these two little verses. And this brings us to a checkpoint. Are we so fervently passionate about the gospel that we would be willing to pronounce an anathema against ourselves or someone else who is preaching a false gospel? Do we love the truth and purity of the gospel that much? In order to have such a passion for the gospel, we must be sure of the gospel. We need to understand it. We need to be able to relate it. We need to grasp it in all of its fullness. I heard the late Dr. R.C. Sproul recount his experience in teaching seminary to a class of pastors who were seeking their Ph.D. At one point in the class, he would go to the blackboard and ask the seminary students, pastors, mind you, to define the gospel. And according to Dr. Sproul, it was rare that he could find one in ten that could define the gospel. Can we believe this? Or maybe the better question is, are we like this? So now I will leave us all with a homework assignment. At some point this week, ask yourself, what is the gospel? Can I articulate what the gospel is? What is the good news really? And once you are convinced, once you have searched the scriptures, and you understand the gospel, and if you are a parent... Sit down with your children and ask them. Don't respond in shock or disappointment if you receive a feeble or wrong answer. 
but gently and patiently and in fullness of joy, explain to them more clearly the gospel. What a great blessing it would be if the seeds of the gospel, if the understanding were planted from a very, very early age, and they were to grow up being able to articulate and defend the gospel in all of its fullness. Some of the answers to doc, that Dr. Sproul would, would get to his question went along the lines of, God has a wonderful plan for your life. There's your gospel. Or God gives you a purpose-driven life. Maybe that dates the particular time frame of this message. God gives purpose and meaning to your existence. It sounds as if the answers were largely man-centered in their perspective rather than Christ-centered. In our fallen condition, our natural inclination is to want to have our guilt assuaged not by a spirit-wrought repentance and faith that confesses our utter dependence upon and yielding to Jesus the Christ as our Lord and Savior, but by words that make us feel good or diminish the true nature of our sin, and to find acceptance with the least possible inconvenience. And if you happen to be preaching and are motivated to attract a large, as large a crowd as possible, or perhaps desiring to build a megachurch, we might be tempted to the latter rather than the former. In other words, we would be tempted to become a man-pleaser instead of a God-pleaser. Paul, for one, would have none of this. Turning now to verse 10, Paul writes, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. A parable is told of a young, aspiring writer whose talent for his chosen craft was wanting, or at least underdeveloped. Yet he was humble as well as ambitious, and so after composing what he thought to be a rather witty and inspired short story, he shared it with a trusted friend to get his friend's feedback and honest assessment of his effort. The friend, wanting to encourage and help, gladly took the papers and after some time returned with his review. I hate to put it this way, but it is utter rubbish. I can't make head nor tails of the story. There is no plot or character development. And you fill the whole thing with made-up words and confusing situations. In fact, the whole story is barely more than a collection of random, arbitrary sentences strung together without any purpose at all. I'm sorry. Not being deterred, the young writer took his story to the meeting of a local literary society, and when he had read it before them, no one there was willing to admit they hadn't understood what they had just heard. Therefore, one critic cried, Profound! Imaginative, declared another. Far in advance of our time, said a third. It takes a certain amount of gumption, especially for some of us, to set aside our natural desire to be people pleasers. We want to find favor in the eyes of others, especially from those in our circle of friends or those for whom we have a measure of honor and respect. 
It was natural and easy and involved no risk of confrontation or hurt feelings for those in the literary society to, to try and please the young writer with their skillfully worded flattery. But it was the friend who provided his honest assessment that would be of most benefit to the aspiring writer. The friend wasn't as interested in pleasing as he was in the truth. And as we look into the letter to the Galatians, it just may be that the troublemakers referenced in verse 6, the Judaizers who were corrupting the gospel by adding the requirements of the law, circumcision, etc., were accusing Paul of being a people pleaser. As the gospel was being delivered to the Gentiles and they were being added to the faith, it is not difficult to imagine some reluctance on their part to being circumcised as a part of the initiatory rite. And so perhaps these Judaizers were making Paul out to be some sort of seeker-sensitive evangelist, lowering the bar, as it were, to make it easier for the Gentile converts. Can you imagine? Paul, your best life now apostle. It just doesn't work, does it? And he would have nothing to do with it. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? And so in verse 10, Paul begins his defensive response to the Galatians. Up through verse 9, he's, he's taken an offensive posture. But in verse 10, and all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, Paul will defend his calling and position as an apostle of Christ. And he begins here letting the Galatians know, for if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There is an utter incompatibility in trying to be a man-pleaser and serving Christ fully. But did you catch the wording Paul uses there in the last part of verse 10? For if I still pleased men, if I yet pleased men. Part of Paul's former error as he was looking back on it now may have been that of pleasing men. As Luke records for us in Acts 22, Paul speaking, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense which I make unto you now. And when they had heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in the city Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted the way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, and as also the high priest doth bear me witness in all the estate of the elders, from whom I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were bound unto Jerusalem to be punished. But after the Damascus Road experience, everything changed for Paul. He met the living Lord. He was given the truth about the way and was now a set-apart gospel messenger bound in service to the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ. 
He is now able to see that his zeal toward God was really a form of people-pleasing and that he had been blind to the truth. He could no longer attempt to please both Gamaliel or the elders and God. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. We can't preach a people-pleasing gospel. Why? There is too much about the gospel that is contrary to the wisdom of the world. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. There is a kind of people pleasing that is fraught with compromise and has no place in the spiritual tool chest of the Christian. But don't misunderstand me. A Christian is to be kind and considerate and loving and gentle and patient. But you must not compromise the truth and integrity of the gospel in order to please people. But the impulse toward people-pleasing runs deep, and it manifests itself in unsuspecting ways, even in tradition. Tradition. But I'm, I won't go there. Um, this is more clearly seen when we consider what has been referred to as the friends and family hermeneutic. Have you heard that term before, friends and family hermeneutic? That, okay, not many. I know I've heard it quite a bit. And, and this, many of us right here have felt the pressure of the friends and family hermeneutic. Let me see if you get it as I try to explain. So as we approach Scripture or the application of our Scripture to our lives, very often this hermeneutic comes into play. As we study the Word, being led by the Holy Spirit, there are times when our understanding and convictions begin to grow in a direction that may be different than, than that which we grew up with, or that of our family, or that of our close friends. Let's say someone, someone uh, grew up in a loving and vibrant dispensational credo-baptist church. You could pick any scenario. And over time, their views began to change, and they, they embrace a covenantal understanding of Scripture and as a result, they view their children and the eschaton differently. Do you think they will feel the pressure not to rock the boat from their close friends and, and from their family members as they wrestle with the Scriptures in these particular ways? Do you think they will really begin uh, this struggle and consider the possibilities of the relationships that may be broken or strained or at least wither to some extent if they consider changing churches? What is the emotional and relational and maybe even financial cost of these new convictions that they're growing under? It could be significant. And at some point, they may ask themselves, is it worth it? Do I keep peace with God or, or, or my family or, you know, what do I do here? Or to put it another way, do I want to please my friends and my church friends and, or, do I, or do I need to please God in this situation? Life is hard. Convictions are tested. 
And so the question is, how will you respond when faced with a choice between pleasing people or pleasing God? I hope the choice will be clear and that you will choose to please God. But I confess, it may be very difficult. But we also face the challenge of people pleasing more often than we realize. For example, how many times have you said yes to something when you really wanted to say no? Maybe we needed to stretch ourselves in that moment or overcome laziness, and yes was the right choice. But there are times when we simply want to please or placate someone, and so we say yes. And by the way, this is a terrible trap to fall into for, for the young parent trying to train up your children. Don't be a child pleaser either. Don't appease your little ones for the sake of a moment's peace. You will only be purchasing much more difficulty for you and for the child and, the same, and at the same time promoting a selfish, defiant, and manipulative character in the ones you love so very much. Or how about this form of people-pleasing that is, that is even more convicting? Have you ever tolerated or endorsed something that you knew to be wrong in order not to offend someone or not make waves or, or whatever the motivation might have been? Have you ever sat through a blasphemous or vile movie for the sake of entertainment or to avoid embarrassment? Have you ever failed to call a sin, sin, and instead chosen a soft euphemism so as not to offend someone, or perhaps more commonly, so as not to offend yourself? Yes, I believe that choosing to please yourself is one type of people-pleasing, and it may even be the most common form we are tempted by. We should want to do the right thing without speaking tepid people-pleasing qualifications so that we may please the Lord, which means we need to know the difference between what is right and wrong. We need to know what is true and what is false. We need to know whether or not we believe that the whole counsel of God is worthy, trustworthy, sufficient, and infallible. Do I question the scientific and ethical authorities based on the revelation of Scripture, or is it the other way around? If it is the other way around, where does this leave the authority of Scripture? Are the 66 books of Scripture commonly called the Old and New Testaments the full and final revelation of God? Or did an angel named Moroni bring another gospel? If a friend challenges us that we can't be a true Christian and eat fried chicken, or that we need to put that baguette away and pick up the loaf of Ezekiel bread over there, to be truly devoted to God, do we have a loving but biblical response that is pleasing to God? I hope that we do, and that we grow in the capacity to do so even better as God works in us, both to will and to do His good pleasure. Paul declares his astonishment that the Galatians were so quickly deserting the gospel, and then he declared the double anathema. He says, let anyone who would preach another gospel, whether it be him, his companions, an angel from heaven, or the troublemakers in their midst, be devoted to destruction, anathema, accursed. And to paraphrase Paul again, do I sound like a people pleaser when I write this way? 
I did so once, but I, I would be an unworthy servant of Christ if I did so now. But as I close, I want to try and show the other side of people-pleasing, lest we get the wrong idea. There are those types of people-pleasing which are actually God-honor and gospel-promoting, if we understand the term rightly. In the ninth chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more, win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. In other words, Paul was committed to pleasing others if it promoted the gospel. He was willing to bend his preferences to theirs, yet he also refused to please people if he perceived that doing so would hinder the gospel. There are plenty of texts that help us to discern the difference between people-pleasing that is self-serving and that which is other-serving and selfless. From Philippians 2, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let us esteem other better than ourselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, pour out yourself, would be the cry from Romans 12 there. So how should we take these truths in light of the dangers of people pleasing? How do we serve others and honor them above ourselves and yet appropriately Refuse to do so at the right time in the right place. And as usual, we look to Christ. We look to Jesus. We pour out ourselves for those in need, those in lack, those in want, those we love, and those who are hard to love. We love our neighbors so much that we sacrifice our time and desires in favor of theirs. And we also have the courage and conviction to stand ready to refute the gainsayers and turn away the charlatans. And always remember that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes... We are healed. The gospel is beautiful. It must never be compromised. It is worth defending and even dying for. 
And so as we look unto Christ, let us be bold in our testimony and defense of the gospel, seeking to please only Him and sacrificial in our love and service to others because we love Him. Our most gracious Father in heaven, the glorious truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is so very precious and potent that it is to be preserved in its integrity and promulgated to the ends of the earth. We are thankful for Paul's passionate defense of the one true gospel and for the inerrant, holy inspired and preserved word so that we too might look to his example and know how better to walk in the light of your revelation. Give us strong backbones to be able to bear the weight of the trials and challenges that attack our faith. Strong minds trained in the doctrine of your word to be able to refute the gainsayers and discern error and the courage to turn from error and not yield to the temptation to please men, desiring only to please our great God in heaven and do all things for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen.